People go, oh, what's the difference? Here's the difference. Shaq is rich. The white man that signs his check is wealthy. Oh, here you go, Shaq. Go buy yourself a bouncing car. Bling, bling. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. Uh, we are in Chapel Hill today, and I'm here with Joe Minicozzi. Oh, welcome, <laughs> back on the, yeah, back welcome on the to podcast. North Carolina. Yeah, dude. Um, welcome back to the podcast. And Josh, you're going to, have to give me your last name again. McCarty. Josh McCarty. We'll pass the mic over to you in a little bit here too. Uh, Joe and I back doing the the traveling road show here in uh, in North Carolina. Um, we had to give one presentation this afternoon. We've got another one coming up here today. How do you think things went? Uh, I think things went well. It's uh, you know, Chapel Hill is kind of an interesting place. This is the center of University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, um, which is the, uh, I guess, the largest of North Carolina schools. Largest. Largest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it, so it's got a, a phenomenal presence inside the community, and uh, the community has interesting challenges uh, with its constraints and growth um, inside there. And it's also within its position inside the re- the, the tr- broader triangle area of Raleigh, Durham, and Chapel Hill. Okay, now you and I have been traveling around the state, and we've been doing this kind of one-two act. And my part's been relatively easy because my part's to go in and like sucker punch everybody and show them that the world they thought was black is actually white or white is actually black, uh, whatever way it works out. And tell them that, you know, because of what we've done the last 60 years, everything's going to hell. And then you come up and show them, hey, uh, we've got a different, you know, a different way of looking at things that may be able to help us out. Um, talk about, uh, let's just talk about for a second about that approach. Why do you think that that's kind of resonated with people, uh, as we've, you know, cause it really has been a lot of acclaim that we've gotten here, just giving this pretty basic, simple presentation. Well, I, th- I think it's work particularly because people have, you know, I, I think it's different in each community uh, before here, uh, we were in the. The, what's called the triad area, which is Greensboro, Winston-Salem, High Point um, area, which is a totally different culture and economy. Um, so here it tends to be more intellectual um, or intellectually focused, where there it's more um, more broad-based about jobs. It's a it's a an area of the state that was pretty strong in textiles, furniture, and tobacco for a number of years. So it's a little bit more. Um, base level conversations about cities here they're used to talking about cities at a high level but what's what i think has been unique in both cases 
is that this conversation at a basic level about taxes really hasn't been hasn't made its way into the mainstream about talking about planning in the and I think that what's been eye opening in both situations is the dots are connected. Right, right. Now I used to when I would see you give your presentation, you go through and have just this spectacular math, this I mean, very simple but very powerful, uh, these great drawings and renderings that would really capture where the most productive parts of the city. What I didn't realize is that you're just the storyteller. <laughs> you're not actually like the genius behind some of this stuff. There's Josh. There's Josh. Josh, why don't you come over, come over here and sit down. No, here, I, I'll let him share my mic. Um, so Josh, uh, let's talk a little bit about, first of all, where are you from? I'm from North Carolina. I grew up in the Triangle and uh, moved to Asheville, moved to the mountains as soon as I was able, and um, that's where I feel at home. So basically, I am from the state. Okay. So you that's where you met Joe in Asheville? Correct. And uh, got mixed up with this whole thing? Right. So t tell us what your background is. Uh, so I went to Asheville uh, to go to UNC Asheville, and I graduated in 2006, and uh, leapt headlong into the recession um, and spent a couple years trying to figure out why I had a liberal arts degree and uh, <laughs> how that was supposed to be anything resembling useful or lucrative. Um, and I went through a lot of ideas. Um, I had a lot of weird jobs. And at one point, I realized I had an epiphany that um, what I should do or think about is uh, what would I do if I had all the resources that I could possibly? If I was a billionaire, what would I spend my time doing? And I realized that at my terrible jobs, I would spend, you have to entertain yourself and have a really boring job. Yeah. Um, I would just think about cities all the time. Yeah. Buildings, streets, street patterns, how cities function, and it just sort of dawned on me. So you're saying you're a total geek? Uh, without a doubt. Unrepentantly. <laughs> with, no, with no real life skill. <laughs> yeah, no, none whatsoever. Actually, you're a cool guy. I wouldn't have guessed you it were such depends, a geek. Life skill, it all depends on how willing you are to talk about cities. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, I hear you. Um, and I, I try, to try to shape other topics into talking about cities. Okay. Varying degrees of success. But at some point, uh, I thought, okay, maybe I should be an architect because they design cities. I like skyscrapers and buildings and seem reasonable. Yeah, yeah. And I looked around and realized that there were some potential downsides to that plan. Um, given that Starving was, being one? Starving, designing buildings that were awful to not starve. Yeah. Uh, going to school for five more years, all of things that I sure. wasn't super excited about. Also, I can't draw. Oh, yeah, that's a little bit of a downside. Right. So um, it's actually, yeah, point of desperation. I went to, you, I, went, I kept going back to UNCA. I felt like they, you know, owed me. Sure. So I would go to the career center and just beg them to find, to figure out what I'm supposed to do. Yeah, yeah. And, and at one point, you know, I got more and more desperate and I just said, you know, I like, I told her what I just said basically about cities and she said, hey, oh, there's this guy you should talk to. And, uh, she put me in touch with Joe. Wow. And, um, okay. And I told him about my architecture plan and it's kind of, you know, I was at the point where I could just say what I actually meant about things. So I said, um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about, uh, uh, 
designing cities or, or doing architecture and design, but I'd rather be the kind of the person who decides what gets built. Sure. And, and I didn't, but I was like, I don't think that's a real job. And Joe said, oh, that's what I do. <laughs> I'm a developer. Okay. Let me, I'm going to pass. We only have two microphones here, so I'm going to pass mine over to Joe. And what I'd like you two to do is just describe the, uh, the epiphany process or the thought process of how you two kind of came together and then started building and developing these uh, uh, amazingly descriptive maps that I've called productivity maps. I'm sure you guys have a different name for them, but why don't you describe that process of how you guys came together to do that? So one of the projects that we had going on at the time, you know, it, Josh is, is kind of being, um, modest on his on his background. He's got his his concentration was in economics. So knowing that with Josh and knowing his attention to detail and willingness to dork out on numbers, um, we had a project going on at the time. Um, the bigger project is called the Environmental and Economic Case for Urbanism, and it's all about the value of of building downtown. What that does for a lighter green footprint. Um, environmentally, but also what what are the numbers um, economically and and producing or valuing downtown development versus all other forms so are, are there ways that you could tease out the numbers um, We had been doing things in you know, Josh kind of got on me about it because we would do the, I call it the pick and poke method where we would just go out and just visually look at buildings and go, Hey, how much is yeah. that one worth? I think like, if I can yeah, yeah, go ahead, happen. Well, I think, um, a lot of my academic career and, and professional careers in a lot of cases come down to, um, looking at the qualitative patterns that a lot of us see, uh, especially with regards to sprawl, because it's so hard to quantify. It's so hard to pinpoint. A lot of what I've done is try to figure out ways to quantify that so we can measure it and measure its effects. And, and so Josh also has the technological sophistication to kind of know the softwares to use. So it's kind of funny. He's like, you know, you could use GIS for that. And we're like, yeah, we know there's this GIS stuff, but we don't know how to use it. And of course, Josh did. So Josh was running the maps of, of the data for the questions that we were just kind of like intuitively just bumping around into. Um, but that's, that's, you know, the, the per acre method came out of our office from the president of our company, Pat Whalen, um, just wanting to get to a basic um, comparative tool, uh, the least common denominator. And the least common denominator in every city is dirt. So if you, if you can, everybody can get their brains around that, then what's the unit that everybody measures land by? And that's an acre. So Josh essentially automated a lot of our um, conversations and theories and then took it to the next level of three-dimensionalizing it. So if you can make a two-dimensional map, if you can make a two-dimensional image, it can be 3 d um, So you know, Josh and I on this trip have been talking about doing three-dimensional physical models with 3D printers is maybe the next step. Wow. Um, which could be kind of fun. So Talk yeah. about the 3D um, map. I mean, what, sure. What, 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 what is it describing? What are you looking at? Well, um, that, like, like a lot of things that um, uh, start in these – uh, analyses. Um, it all comes out of curiosity and really just playing around with the data. You have the information there and you try to figure out like, well, what, what does it look like if I do this? And at one point I figured out how I could extrude anything, any, I could take any GIS data and turn it into uh, Google Earth data and look at it in 3D. And I'd already been looking at this property data. So I just, I just ran that and, um, uh, well, here's, I mean, to me, 
there's a there's a part in the conversation every time joe you and i have given a talk here in north carolina the last couple months there's a point in the presentation where you say uh does anybody can anybody tell where the downtown is and it's almost like a gag line because you're looking at this 3d map that shows the 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 the, the tax base essentially the the productivity the revenue per square foot and the downtown is this high purple you know it, it dwarfs everything else by a magnitude of like 10 and it just jumps right out at you uh talk about describe that map and describe i want to hear the process too that that you went through josh to kind of visualize this and put this together and why it's such a powerful descriptive tool yeah the, the map it's, it's kind of fun to be doing a radio show without the image um, trying to describe it but perhaps we can hang it on on your website but in the case of the the, the we'll, we'll, we'll use the chapel hill map as an example is that you'd, you'd kind of expect if for those of you that could envision a, a skyline like standing in the distance and looking at the skyline of the city and you see the peak of the buildings at the center in downtown and it gradually tapers off into a flat line of, of development. You may see an occasional rise here or there. Um, the, the model map of the valuation follows that same trajectory, but what's different is um, the values are significantly greater than the heights of the physical building. So in the case of Chapel Hill, if you looked at the value model, you would think they'd have the, the World Trade Center and the Empire State Building in the middle of their downtown, when in the reality of it is their tallest building is what, Josh, maybe 12 stories tall? Yeah. So so here's a... That pays taxes. Yeah, that pays taxes, we should say. Here's a here's a small town of um, about 100,000, or less than, less than 80,000 people um, that has this tremendously potent downtown. Um, in the next town over, of Carborough you see the similar bump in its downtown, not as big as Chapel Hill, it's probably about half that. And then the third city out in Hillsborough is half of, of Carborough. So you see this, this kind of uh, physically you can see where the money is coming from. Yeah, I think, I think, I think that's what's uh, powerful about a 3D model is that uh, you can look at a map and see the colors and maybe, maybe it stands out, maybe you get it. And you can look at the numbers and some people can work just from the numbers. But I mean, for one thing, um, the size of the, the lots is so small that you can barely pick out downtown sometimes just on a 2d top-down map when you put it in 3d it's an instantly recognizable pattern because it looks just like a skyline yeah, and I think that, you know, ultimately behind underscoring all of this and maybe the, 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 the common thread in, in, in what we're doing in Urban 3 and what you're doing with Strong Towns is getting past the biases of how people have had conversations about cities. Um, you know, the, I've, I've got uh, transportation engineer friends who like to joke that anybody who drives a car considers themselves a transportation engineer because they've got a license. And the same is true of cities. Anybody that lives and operates inside of a city feels that they're knowledgeable about how cities operate. But if you can get past those conversations and get into what's the data look like, it changes the way that people have a conversation about it. So it's, it's again, allowing those biases to get checked at the door. And although you, you still see them in our presentations, you hear them in the Q&A of how people still have a hard time getting past what they feel is an educated um, observation, when in reality, it's just, it's, it's nothing more than a rumor, really, than anything else. It's a, it's a faith that they have in cities rather than real science. I think, to me, the, the most powerful thing about it is just the, the realization of how valuable the traditional pattern of development is. Uh, 
And, you know, it, I, I think to me that was one of the missing links that I had just intellectually that your work filled. It's a, it's a mental void that your work filled because I, I was seeing these cities that uh, worked and in trying to discover, like, you know, how do we find a model that actually works if this whole post-World War II thing isn't working? And for me, as the engineer, I was still trying to say, in our American approach, how do we tweak it? Is there a cost-benefit analysis we can come up with? Is there a, a different way we can value uh, projects? Is there a different way we can math, you know, score this or what have you that will give us different outcomes? And what your work did for me is allow me to make this mental leap back and say, oh my gosh, the traditional development pattern just inherently without any other math, intellectual pursuit, any huge amount of forethought given to it is just massively productive. Even the little, and I, I like to joke about the Jimmy's Pizza, but what's the one place here in town that's just a little, uh, the one at the... Oh, the, it's a spotted dog restaurant. Yeah, yeah this $22 little... $22 million dollars an acre. This little one-story restaurant <laughs> just like dwarfs the, the productivity of the Walmart and the mall and the, I mean, everything. Yeah, to, for the, for the, the, the viewers at home or the listeners at home, the spotted dog is a tiny little building on 0 0.02 acres. Um, it's this tiny little property in the center of downtown Carborough, one story tall, but it, but it, but it's essentially an FAR of one. It operate, it touches every square inch of its property and it's just taking its whole property line and extruding it up a story. Um, that's, that's averaging a value of about $22 million an acre. So if you had an acre of that building, it would be $22 million worth of property value to put that in perspective inside the same County, the Walmart is uh, $600,000 an acre. Uh -huh. um, so $22 million an acre, $600,000 an acre. The best retail strip mall in Chapel Hill is this place called Timberline, and it's got the Trader Joe's. It's it's actually a phenomenally busy uh, retail market that's that's denser than typical suburban development retail. That's about a million dollars an acre. Yeah. So if that's pulling a million dollars an acre and Spotted Dog is Spotted Dog is twenty two million dollars an acre, it's really it changes your perspective on the value of building. So not only are the, that that traditional pattern more productive, but it also makes obvious that the policies that we've put in place have provided a a, a tragic disincentive to continue that path because you know the, our parent company, Public Interest Projects in um, Asheville, is a downtown real estate developer so essentially we're we're swimming upstream against these policies because we're inherently taxed more right. for that downtown development so you can look at it as being more productive but it's also our tax policies encourage you to actually build cheaper buildings and, and consume more real estate right so we've put policies in place that basically reward people one of the reasons why our tax models flatten out really quickly is because those development patterns further out are less productive right so, um, you know, making a, there's a term that I love to use that attorneys use called the logical rational nexus. When you make a policy, there has to be a, a means of connection, right? A rational connection between.
between the policy and what you're trying to ameliorate, what you're trying to fix. So if I'm making property taxes, shouldn't we have a connection between the cost of services that go along with that? And our current property tax system doesn't do that. Right. And neither does the sales tax. Not at all. The the frustrating thing about the sales tax, and there's this proliferation of places around the country trying to do that, uh, you know, sales tax is like the the fix-all. In Minnesota, there's this big push to have the sales tax to fund transit down in the Twin Cities metropolitan area. And it's essentially a non-correlated slush fund. Kind of destined, yeah. You guys do that here, and, yeah. and Charlotte did it. You know, it, it's an effective way of, of raising taxes, but you, there you is can raise dis- revenue. Yeah, there 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 is a disconnect though. It's like, right. why would you mess with that pot? You know, if, in my mind, if you have a retail tax, there should be something that goes to that tax is paying for what you know the yeah, yeah. the extra commerce, yeah. the more more traffic lights, more uh, trips that happen at those locations, more car accidents, whatever. That's the rational connection between retail taxes. So what is my retail tax environment doing to encourage more government costs? Right. But to just say, okay, we're going to use retail taxes for schools. Yeah, yeah. What does that have to do with this? Well, it works really well, too, until, you know, you you get a recession and people stop buying things. Or there's an internet. Right. Yeah, precisely. It's not a very robust. Go ahead. I'll just go through that. I've got a couple questions I want to ask you, but go yeah, ahead. Like in the this. case, in the case of the retail taxes um, in North Carolina, um, and we 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 pulled the numbers uh, from a couple of years ago in in uh, Orange County, um, and just to give the the audience an understanding, like in the case of Chapel Hill, Chapel Hill produced forty five million dollars worth of retail sales taxes, and it got back only about nine million. So think of that. You create $45 million worth of tax revenue, and at the end of the day, Chapel Hill has $9 million sitting in a bucket, which comes back. So you ask – for those of you at home, you should be asking, well, where's the rest of that 30-something million go? Right. And that's what goes up to the state. It goes to other counties. And so most counties that we see function this way. There are the, the few that this, the municipalities actually get a, a greater share of retail taxes. But generally speaking, property taxes is where it's at. That's where the general – obligations of a city are functioning well the the sales tax and i get this too when people say well we have to create jobs and you know i people get upset with me when i point out well you know you don't get any money for creating jobs uh you know you could have a a a building that was a million dollar building that had five jobs and the next day it's a million dollar building with a hundred jobs and you don't get any direct benefit for that additional 95 jobs. The state does. The federal government does because they have income tax. Yeah. Now, there's residual benefit. People will say, well, they, those people go shop and they eat in restaurants. And th- there's a certain logic to that. But it's almost inverse in a sense. The, the productivity uh, of the place uh, induces the jobs, not the jobs induce the productivity. In other words yeah. – uh, you know, if you've got a productive place, you're going to have jobs emerge from that. If you throw a bunch of jobs in it, it doesn't necessarily mean that the place is going to ultimately be productive financially. And, and also that, you know, what, is a retail job going to really have an impact on on the economy as much as a job in high tech or a job in medical? Right. Um, or is that retail job not going to happen because you didn't allow a Walmart? Right. You know, so. You know, one could argue that the retail is essentially following the community's economic wealth and that the people will spend 30% of their income in retail transactions regardless of the shape of the architecture. Right. So that that's another argument is that essentially sometimes retail um, 
is cannibalizing existing retail. Uh, what we saw in Helena, Montana last last week, uh, Montana has no retail sales tax. Yet here they are building new retail establishments, leaving behind these empty husks of stuff that's now producing even less property tax revenue. Right. And the and the new stuff is killing the old stuff. This is where, and th- this is kind of the first question I wanted to ask you. If, if we go back to that, what was the place? The sloppy dog or what is it called? Oh, the, uh, Spotted dog. <laughs> the spotted dog. Okay, sorry. <laughs> it could be a sloppy okay. dog. Yeah, it could be a sloppy. So we go to the spotted dog. I can envision, you know, great, great, great Grandpa Marone and his contemporaries in old time Brainerd, Minnesota, out there building these, you know, a collection of these little places and not really understanding what they were doing, except, you know, any more than the fact that this is how you built a place. If they had done that, you know, just building places like that spotted dog of that size, scale, single story, uh, you know, 25 feet wide, little, they were building a, a really wealthy city, were they not? Yeah. And I think, I mean, there's lots of stories in the spotted dog. I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of crazy. There, there's the story of being efficient on land. Um, there's also, I mean, we have a picture up right now of the spotted dog comparing it to a Walmart. You know, if you had a half acre of spotted dogs out there, and, uh, you know, the spotted dog is right now 0.02 acres. So if you had a half acre, so about, let's say, 20 of those little buildings. You built a little downtown full, full of, of them. that scale. It equals the entire value. So one half acre of that little building equals the entire property tax revenue of the 22 acre Walmart. So it's a potency to it, but also you look, you look at these images and you see that little brick building that's been there probably a hundred years. So it's been in the community's portfolio producing a high density of revenue for over a hundred years. Then you look at the Walmart and say to yourself, is that going to be here a hundred years from now? Hang on. That's my second question is about the Walmart. Go ahead. Well, I was just, I was thinking about your great grandpa Marone building little brick buildings and what occurred to me is the people who were building things like the spotted dog or whatever it was when it was built were building within their means they were they were taking small steps and not building a massive uh, investment like a walmart I, I think that's a, I think and that's it, a brilliant point. You know, one of, just to not beat up Walmart too much, but one of the things we're going to beat up Walmart here okay. in a sec. Well, one of the, one of the things that a lot of people ask me is they're like, you know, do you have something against Walmart? And my answer is always no, and and it's and I I, I firmly believe that. Um, you know, it, it's following the policies and procedures that we have out there today. So they're not doing anything illegal. Um, they're just following our policies. So the question is us to, for communities is in your town, do the policies help or hurt you? You know, if, if those are the questions we need to be asking and then realize that we're empowered to change all of those policies. Right. So if it's, if you pull on that string and you find out that it's connected to your toe and you're ripping your toe off, cut the string, you right. know, change the, change right. the way that you're behaving. Um, because it's, it's in, and you should be asking these questions. Does this help my children, my grandchildren, my great grandchildren? Will this community be here? 
here a hundred years from now and am I, am I leaving it in a fiscally solvent way? See, I also am not reflexively anti Walmart. Uh, you know, I, I, I've gotten asked many times to, you know, Chuck, will you come and help us defeat this Walmart? Uh, come to our city. We'll pay you to come here and speak out against Walmart and be, and, and I just say, no, you know, it's, it's not what I do. It's not what I'm interested in doing. And, and by the time you get to that point in the conversation anyway, uh, you're a long ways gone. Yeah. I would like to just to give it some context because I agree with you. Walmart is simply playing by the rules we've made. They're the, nat- they're the natural logical outcome of the rules we've made on how to build places. Uh, you and I attended a conference a little over a year ago now. Um, yeah. It was maybe a year ago this a year week. Ago, yeah. uh, where we, uh, you know, the, it, it was an assessor's conference. The International Association of Assessing Officers. Exactly. The IAAO. And there was a presentation there uh, by a representative from Walmart. And I want you to describe the, <laughs> the presentation, what was said, and why he was making the arguments he was making. Because it, it's a fascinating insight into what is really one of the greatest partners, for better or for worse, that most of our cities have. Yeah, so, you know, the assessor's conference is, is essentially the conference of, you know, your every county has, has an assessor. In some cases, they're elected. In most cases, they're just regular public officials like your planning director. And they have the, um, the unenviable position of, of trying to find value in people's real estate. So they have, uh, under their best practices, trying to find ways to normalize valuation to be fair and equitable. In fact, that's those two words, fair and equitable, are the name of their trade magazine. And... Um, which sounds just like a fascinating read. Yeah, it? and it's so Chuck and I, of course, we show up to present to them um, with this presentation on how their policies are neither fair nor equitable. Um, so we we're going into the lion's den, so to speak. But it was also for us to learn how they operate. But um, while the presentation was going on, they have all of these other uh, terribly exciting presentations on valuation that were way over my head. But... Um, one of the presentations was from the director of real estate from Walmart, and um, he had done a whole presentation on essentially how cheap the, his buildings are. And he was being 100% honest, and it's actually incredibly efficient for him to rather than having these individual debates on a on a county-by-county basis is just get right to the head of the line, get into their conference, and just explain to all of them, this is how cheap our buildings are. And he went through like a, a our really, buildings are junk. Yeah, here's he, why. Yeah, he basically said that. And uh, is he? Yeah, yeah. You lowest best value. That's right. Yeah, that's so right. Part of bringing the lowest price is is doing the least amount of investment into a piece of architecture as well. So. You know, he was going through the whole model of how cheap the buildings are, what what it cost, what the what the price of a, a piece of steel is, and in his defense, he's the one that should know. He pays for building these buildings, right? So he was making that case to the to the to the assessors. He was handing out his business cards and explaining all of his staff that he has at their availability to talk about it, and he was perfectly willing to be transparent and share his books. Um, I raised my hand at the end of the presentation. I was kind of blown away through the whole thing. Um, 
And I asked the question, I said, so how long is your building going to last in the community? And he immediately shot back 15 years that we can be out of our building and be gone and still break even or make our money in 15 years. That in fact, we look to be out of our buildings in 15 years. So think about that, that he is basically expressing a 15 year commitment to a community. Now, why that's his tripping point could be a number of different things. It could be their investment model. It could be the money that they use. It could be 30-year money that getting out in 15 years meets the depreciation cycle as well as the interest where you go from interest to principal. I don't know how they're they're financing that. But there's there's lots of things on why he's choosing that. But the question is, this is a cooperative investment with your community, your corporation, your town. So is 15 years a good enough commitment for, for, for us to have a relationship? You know, could I walk up to my wife and say, we're going to get married for a week. That's, <laughs> I'm going to commit to a short-term relationship with you. You know, it could be fun. It could be exciting. It could be right. a, a wonderful time. But well, is that and, the and that by want? the way, as part of this investment, you're going to buy uh, or agree to, you know, all of these uh, long-term ongoing things that may or may not uh, survive, you know, or our, our marriage may or may not outlast. You know, you know while, while, while we're married for that week, I'm going to go ahead and finish off my, my grad school experience and you're going to obligate right. yourself to my debt. Right. And then I'm moving on and you're going to be picking up some of my bill. Right. You know, what other, what other forms of investment do we have in that 15 year relationship that, that your children and grandchildren are going to be stuck paying off? Well, um, you have shown me, uh, here in North Carolina, a number of buildings and, and we don't, we have some of this in Minnesota, but we don't have a lot of it, particularly in my hometown. We don't have a lot of old stuff, but you've shown me a number of buildings. The, the one that Julian did in Greensboro that had been there a hundred years plus. Yeah. Uh, you think about the investment that that was in the community and the essentially the legacy that that thing has been an investment that yeah there it is now this is this is in Helena Montana um, it's a building in downtown called the Power Block Helena Montana had the um, the highest per capita wealth of the United States by the turn of the 1900s. So they got rich from the late 1800s to early 1920s um, when it was like the high point of unbelievable architecture in the urban form. So here's this granite building in the middle of town built in 1889. It's uh, about seven stories. Um, it's pulling a value of about $13 million an acre. So you think of that potency and it's been around for, you know, it's a century, a more, century, right. a almost a century and a half. Yeah, yeah. And this building is not going to go anyplace for another century and a half. Right. And so here it is at $12 million an acre when their um, power center big box area is less than a million dollars an acre today. Right. So it's 12 times the value. Of okay. Go ahead. I, I just – there's something that popped into my mind. Can I – okay. Chris Rock, one of my favorite my favorite uh, comedians, right? He had this bit that he did back in the 90s where he talked about the difference between uh, being rich and being wealthy, right? And one of his lines was, you know, Shaquille O'Neal is rich. The guy who signs Shaq's check is wealthy. I look at that, I look at that building and I see wealthy. I mean, I see a community that is actually building wealth. Yeah. And I compare that to Helena, Montana, again, the same place who not only has the one kind of uh, belt of big box, 
and ran all the sewer and water and all the utilities and everything else, but actually now is maintaining all of that in order to have it extend out to a second belt of big box, while the first belt is now largely unoccupied or in very low type of uses. That is rich, which means it's here today, could be gone tomorrow. The wealthy one in the downtown, that one's going to keep can it keep paying for a long, long time? Yeah, and it, it it's you know in the in the case of and, the, and this isn't just in Montana. Um, you know, you see this in you know going back to Greensboro. Greensboro had several bands of of large retail expansions. That that is that feeling rich. You know, it's a, this new development. We just built infrastructure out there, and sure enough, new development comes out there. Um, but is it providing wealth? to the community that's long term what's the you know are you running the numbers to even see what it's going to be in 15 years now knowing full well if if the walmart executive is going out to public presentations and having a conversation and saying openly i am and unabashedly we're only committing to 15 years if we know that as a public sphere are we going into saying okay what's your 16 look like for us if you're only committing to 15 years, that's great. So at the end of our relationship, what 16 years look look like? What does it look like for us when we walk, when we open the door on year 16? And what kind of world are we going to have to deal with? And that's that's no one is 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 running those numbers. Uh, so one thing that that made me uh, think of when we're talking about um, what some of these old buildings from the 1800s are doing today, what they're doing in terms of value. Uh, one thing that came up when I was presenting uh, a few weeks ago in Charlotte was someone asked about uh, when we come up with new plans and, and new development, how do we basically plan for the unforeseeable, the changes in technology, all the things we don't see coming the way no one saw, the way Best Buy didn't see the internet coming or internet commerce. And um, what I said was um, buildings that are built to last are also flexible. And so all of our old mills, uh, especially a great example of this, talking about wealth, uh, you can see the wealth in Durham when it was once the capital of a tobacco empire. And all of those mills that aren't mills anymore are high-end housing. But things that are built like like Best Buys, when Best Buys get abandoned, or, or Walmarts, when they hit 15 years, they become nothing. They become gray space, parking lots. And they're, they're designed for obsolescence. They're designed to fall apart. Um, and those, again, they're, they're playing by our rules. They're playing by our standards. And it's it's also a more nationalized system of money. So they have an obligation to get some of their wealth back to Manhattan to distribute into their uh, stock options and 401ks and whatever um, and provide that wealth to their shareholder. And then the rest of their money has to go to Arkansas. So they've perfected a really efficient model of delivering wealth um, out of you know, out of communities and into their own pockets, which is I was model. I was gonna describe it. I've described it in the past as the current rendition of mercantilism. I mean, mercantilism in the 1600s, 1700s was the idea that you know we would take the wealth in the the land and the continent here, essentially mine it, uh, whether it was logs or whether it was an, uh, you know copper or what have you. Uh, or just you know the the. 
head when Joe was talking about the 15-year lifespan was, oh, it's an extractive industry. It's an extractive industry. That's exactly what it is. So in mercantilism, you essentially you know, extract the wealth, send it over. In this case, we were sending it to England where they would refine it, processes, take the beaver pelts and make hats yeah. and whatever out of it, and then ship those back and sell them to us at a higher cost. And I, I do you know, sense that a, a lot of what has gone on over the last 60 years in a place like Chapel Hill, in a place like my hometown of Brainerd, in a place like Asheville, is the wealth that has had been built incrementally over time within those communities is being mined and stripped out and essentially nationalized. So it makes our federal GDP numbers look good. It makes our federal unemployment numbers look good. It makes the profits of a company like Walmart look good. But in terms of our local balance sheet, it's just ravaged it. It just destroyed it. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of funny. I, th I think, you know, there might be some that might accuse us of being anti-capitalistic or um, somehow Ooh, we maybe not me. somehow we <laughs> hate business. You know, I'll note that we're all wearing ties as we talk about this. Um, Do, let me just be clear. <laughs> Don't you run a business? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. just, I, you know, <laughs> um, he doesn't pay me. You know, it's a utopian business. <laughs> we, we we're just, doing it for the good of the world. Yeah. Right? Nice. No, it's, um, also, we have beards. Yeah, no, it's it's a you know it, it does have to make sense. It does have to make a profit and and produce revenue. But it's all just about engaging the conversation with your eyes wide open to really pull the numbers and see what's there. Um, you know, I I closed today's presentation with um, Ronald Coase. Um, author of the Coase Theorem, or what's known as the Coase Theorem. It was actually a paper called uh, The Problem of Social Cost in 1960. won a Nobel Prize for it. Um, and what, one of my favorite quotes of his is that if you torture the numbers long enough, they'll confess. And, and what's... <laughs> What's amazing is how, and I'm saying this, I'm not a numbers person by nature or uh, by interest, but it's become obvious to me that you have to use the numbers to really see what's going on behind what you see. And, um, and it's amazing how few communities engage the numbers in an, in an unemotional, interested, and curious kind of way to just put them out there and see what happens. What do the numbers confess to? You know what is the what is the spotted dog confess to if you if you torture it and ask it to be an acre, you know it's it's the, the numbers will tell you a story. So I, I want to close out by Josh just letting you kind of talk a little bit about the thought process behind some of the some of the analysis that you've done because it's really brilliant. I mean it's really great stuff, and I think it would it would benefit people to. Uh, maybe hear some of that. And if there's something new that you're working on too, that I don't know about, you haven't quite released yet. Maybe you can give us a little thought on like where your brain is headed with some of this stuff. Um, sure. Um, I mean, uh, most of what we've done so far is observational. Um, and we've, we've taken the numbers and we've, we've pulled patterns out of the numbers and we've described those patterns. But what we haven't done a lot of yet is uh, actually trying to describe those patterns quantitatively. Uh, so some of what I'd like to do next is delve into what's actually on the site. So we have, we have land values and building values for parcels now, but we're looking at land. What I'd like to do is include 
include what's built on the land as well and look at things like how many floors it is, how, how efficiently is the space built on, and also location, how far out from the center of a community or what was the historic core, what effect does that have on the value. Put all these things together and, and come up with sort of a, a, a pattern or an equation or formula for each community to figure out where is the value? What what explains the value? Is, is there, uh, you know, Joe and I are the Gen Xers here, and you're the you're the millennial, uh, you know, whiz computer whiz number guy. Where do you see this going? You know, five years from now, ten years from now, you know, you, you you're kind of I think pioneering a different way to apply just basic math to communities in your aspirations where would this go i mean what what how would this work be used around the country well uh ultimately what i'd like to see happen is um we we go around and we point this information out and it starts a conversation sometimes it starts a little more than a conversation um and what needs to be looked at is why we have the policies that we have and and what are we actually trying to accomplish and if it's not working, which I, I think what we're showing is that it typically doesn't, how do we rearrange those policies to get the result that we actually want? And things like tax appraisals, how do we link things like what you look at, the cost of infrastructure, the cost of services, how do we actually do a better job of linking what things cost to what they produce and think more in terms of, of a, really a business because that forces us to be more sustainable. How radical uh, – this is for both of you guys. How radical changes do we need? You know, we had someone stand up in our last conversation here and ask, what about form-based codes? Are form-based codes – you know?" and, and my – I just – my blood started to – I just started to cringe a little bit because I could see that what it is is that people working in certain realms think that, okay, they, I work in the zoning realm and Euclidean zoning is not working. So we got to have form-based code and that will solve everything. It, this feels to me like, you know, the natural outcome of this dialogue is a lot of different changes in a lot of different realms. Is this, is this possible? I mean, are you optimistic? I'd like to think that I'm still optimistic. Um, you know, it's the more, the more that I go around, the more that I see light bulbs do go off with people. You know, I do see that people get excited about this. Um, People dial it in, and it's and it's a lot of it. It's just they haven't had the conversation this way before. Um, there are a lot of pessimistic people, people that don't want to change their way, or they try to refute it with their um, kind of uh, loaded way. Like you'll get the Agenda Twenty One crowd. Um, you get people. My friends. Well, my friends too, and it's <laughs> it's. It's, it's and it's kind of frustrating because we're telling everyone we're doing that. Now. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're this is actually yeah, Chuck's podcast is called Agenda Twenty Two. Um, yes. No, it's it's actually you know it's it's frustrating because I think that people have bought into a notion with a lack of curiosity in understanding this stuff and and getting them past that is 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 the hardest part, uh, and that's the part that makes me less optimistic is when people refuse to check their baggage at the door to open their brains a little bit. Um, but but I, I will say that back to the optimistic Joe that that tends to be um, a narrow minority in the community. Um, there are those that 
that want the magic bullet, um, you know, special sauce policy. That's the be all end all that if we apply it here, it'll, it'll, it'll end, it'll make our world perfect. And they, that's kind of a, a lack of understanding that communities that are an ongoing experiment in an ongoing trial and error process. And you have to be willing to adapt and modify along the way. Like you say in your presentations, your community is, is a, is a, a finer grain, um, slowly modifying um, set of experiments rather than one big one. So um, there's a lot of a lot of positive that I'm seeing around the country that leaves me optimistic that people are willing to get there. I think there was a big wake-up call with the recession. Um, sadly, there are people that are turning right back to pre-recession practices, um, and it was even in the New York Times last week that, you know, suburbia is, suburbia is back, and it's like, all right, good, keep going. Um, but, you know, people can change their ways. How about you? Are you, are you optimistic, John? Well, speaking for uh, all millennials everywhere. Um, uh, uh, the status quo is a heavy, heavy train, and it's not easy to stop. And the, the terrible part about it is, in this case, we're doing damage at a really incredible rate, and that train needs to stop. So it's, it's actually it's very scary. What's scary about this, in addition to the financial problems that we're loading ourselves up with, especially since we didn't heed the, the wake-up call that the recession should have been, at least not everyone did, um, to me, it's also the, the climate. Uh, climate change is, is even scarier. We're not we're not taking that as seriously as we should be. So I see a lot a lot of good people doing a lot of good work, and I, I am optimistic. I think uh, things are going to change, and they're probably going to change rapidly. But I honest, I unfortunately, I think things will have to get worse before they get better, and for people to really understand the gravity of the problems and the, the challenges we face. And just back since since we're you know Josh is speaking for all millennials everywhere, um, you know when when you and I were in his shoes, I mean I remember that it was you're called a heretic if you even had a sidewalk on a project. You know it's just what do you mean you want people to not drive cars? And now it's we've you know there's car sharing programs, there's there's more bike lanes and bike infrastructure, there's bus infrastructure. I mean we're in Chapel Hill where the community pays for the bus system and it's 100 percent free. Which is phenomenal, and so you know that that would never even be thought of in the seventies or even in the eighties. Um, so to 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 see communities and to be traveling around and seeing conversations that are happening, it does give me hope that that there are things that are moving forward in the future. Hanging out with you guys is kind of rough because I've been doing too much laughing here. <laughs> Uh, the uh, broken rib in my back is not, although these are the most comfortable chairs we've had. I think I could sit here for a little while. Um, Joe, Josh, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for the invitation to come back to North Carolina. I got to get you to Minnesota at some point, Joe. I know, you owe me Minnesota. Uh, I can't wait. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody, and keep doing what you can to build strong towns. that America's one big pothole right now.
Marone. This has been fascinating. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.